Hey there again. Welcome to our third episode of the Anchor Surgery Update. The COVID pandemic has resulted in an unknown mobilization of medical resources. Prior to starting our podcast, we would like to spend a few minutes on our perspective of the COVID pandemic. At a first glance, orthopedic surgeons are not the first-line firefighters to tackle COVID-19 pandemic. Still, we are part of a large healthcare ecosystem and we do contribute significantly. The measures taken to tackle COVID are manifold, with patients and healthcare workers' protection, as well as conservation of healthcare resources, being just two of them. For our field, this means that most countries have banned elective surgeries and outpatient clinics. Although we suffer relevant financial losses as a result, we, the orthopedic community, must be role models in every aspect of the measures taken against COVID. Even though the situation in several countries seems hopeless, we believe that everything bad has a positive side and that we can emerge stronger from this crisis. It does give us a chance to reflect and evaluate the application of novel technologies for our workplace. Telemedicine and video conferencing can improve the patient-physician cooperation and possibly reduce cumbersome outpatient clinic visits for our patients. Moreover, applying these technologies more consequently in our daily practice will make interdisciplinary communication more efficient. The implementation of novel technologies such as wearable sensors, online educational platforms and online game-based therapy can improve the rehabilitation for our patients. Finally, we do get some more free time with our families, time that we must use and be grateful for. For now, our thoughts are with our colleagues in those countries that have been struck worse, who are facing an unimaginary humanitarian emergency. But maybe we can distract you for the next minutes by presenting and discussing the following three papers we picked for this month's episode. The articles chosen are First, functional outcome and general health status after plate osteosynthesis of posthumalilus fractures, the quest for eligibility, by Mertens et al., published in Injury. The second article is titled Comparison of Tendon Lengthening with Traditional versus Accelerated Rehabilitation after Achilles Tendon Repair, a prospective randomized controlled trial by Okorara, published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. And the final article is called Effect of Tourniquet Use During Ankle Fracture Fixation on Wound Healing and Infectious Complications by Benedict, published in Foot and Ankle International. Okay, let's get started with our first article, Functional Outcome and General Health Status After Plate Osteosynthesis of Posterior Malleolus Fractures, The Quest of Eligibility. Let's talk about the posterior malleolus. It has been one of the hot topics in ankle fracture research for the last decade or more. Today, fractures of the lateral posterior malleolus are considered bony avulsion fractures of the posterior syndesmosis. Open reduction and internal fixation of the lateral posterior malleolus does therefore not only reconstruct the bony anatomy, but also restores the stability and alignment of the syndesmotic complex. Although these aspects have been proven in multiple studies, data on the actual patient-rated outcome is rare. Martins and colleagues assessed the patient-rated outcome and quality of life after plate osteosynthesis of fractures to the posterior malleolus. To do so, they compared a prospective cohort of 50 patients in which all posterior malleolus fractures were treated by open reduction and plate osteosynthesis to a retrospective cohort of 85 consecutive patients in which the posterior malleolus was not directly addressed. 
For both cohorts, multiple parameters were assessed, including demographics, medical history and fracture details. The patient-rated outcome was assessed in a current follow-up using the AOFAS and the EQ5D. The preoperative characteristics of the two cohorts did not differ considerably, but the retrospective cohort had a longer final follow-up. Postoperatively, the two groups only differed for the quality of reduction of the posterior malleolus, which obviously was significantly better in the open reduction cohort. The number of surgical site infections did not differ between the two groups. But for the open reduction cohort, the authors also assessed numbness of the lateral foot, which occurred in 38% of patients, and the range of motion of the hallux, which showed a flexion deficit in 30% of patients, which persisted in 12%. Overall, the prospective open reduction group showed significantly lower scores for the AOFAS, 73 versus 82 points, P equals 0.018, and lower scores for the EQ5D domains, anxiety, depression, and TTO. Interestingly, these differences did not stay true for a subgroup analysis of trimalleolar fractures only. The authors then conducted a bivariant and a multiple logistic regression analysis on the whole patient sample to identify factors predictive for inferior outcome. For the AOFAS, implant removal was the only parameter negatively influencing the score. For the EQ5D, different parameters per the different domains showed a significant influence, including surgical site infection, age, ASA score and implant removal. The authors finally concluded that there is no indication for routine plate osteosynthesis of all posterior malleolus fracture and highlighted the considerable high number of adverse events, numbness of the lateral side of the foot and flexohalusis longus deficit. Hans, what are your thoughts on this paper? Concerning the quality of the study, I do have the feeling they go out on a limb. Sebastian, I do have the same feeling. As you said, they base their strong conclusion predominantly on two arguments. First, the lower AOFAS score, and second, the considerably higher number of adverse events. Let's start with the study design and statistics. Are they sound enough to draw such a strong conclusion? The authors chose a non-matched group design. Although this study design in general is legitimate, it does have its limitations. Considering the relatively large number of patients in the control group, the authors could, for example, have tried to conduct a one-on-one -on -one matching to make the groups more comparable. Could that have had an impact on the outcome? Yes, they did conduct a subgroup analysis on trimalleolar fractures only, which is somewhat a limited matching. In this subgroup analysis, they did not find any significant differences. So what about statistics? The authors neither tested for normal distribution, nor did they conduct an alpha level correction for multiple testing. The problem of multiple testing is that it increases the rates of type 1 error. It is statistically more sound to conduct either an alpha level correction or state the effect size and estimates of their precision, for example by the confidence intervals. An alpha-level correction could easily be done by Bonferroni or Schaeffer, to name just two. Let's just for fun conduct a Bonferroni alpha-level correction on one of their main tables, table number two. Doing so, this would result in a level of significance of 0.006. In this case, 
the only remaining significant differences between the two cohorts would have been the EQ5D time trade-off. Neither the AOFAS nor any other EQ5D domain would have shown significant differences. With these design and statistical considerations in mind, the conclusion drawn by the authors does seem to be too strong or might not even be true at all. Further, I want to talk about two clinical aspects on the, uh, of the prospective group. First, the authors treated any posterior malleolus fracture independent of its morphology or location by open reduction and plate osteosynthesis. This means they also stabilized shell-like central or medial malleolar fractures. But one of the main reasons to directly address the posterior malleolus is to reduce and stabilize the syndesmotic complex. Obviously, this only accounts for fractures that involve the lateral aspect of the posterior malleolus. Therefore, the authors included a certain percentage of patients in which open reduction of the posterior malleolus might not have been indicated. The second aspect are the considerably high numbers of adverse events following open reduction of the posterior malleolus. They used the dorsolateral approach, which resulted in a numbness of the lateral foot in 38% of the patients. This most likely means they injured the nervous soralis. The herein reported number is considerably higher than in any previous study. The authors do not elaborate their approach in detail, but they might have used a long straight incision. There are great publications on the course of the sural nerve, for example by Webb and Carment. In order not to put the nerve at danger, the incision must distally be curved ventrally at the height of the lateral malleolus. The reported flexion deficit of the hallux is a known problem following open reduction of the posterior malleolus. Still, it would be interesting to know whether this also occurred in the untreated posterior malleolus group, simply due to the injury to the posterior malleolus. We have been using this approach for quite a while now and we encountered two patients with a contracture of the FHL, which is horrible and a great challenge to treat. We now handle the FHL with kid gloves and we do not reconstruct the fascia of the FHL, but only the perineal compartment. Since then, we have not encountered this complication anymore. So what have we learned for our daily practice? The vast majority of literature on open reduction and internal fixation of the lateral posterior malleolus strongly argues for it. The herein discussed study does highlight the importance of choosing the correct study design as well as sufficient statistics. Moreover, one must plan surgical approaches deliberately and handle soft tissue with care. We will continue to treat any lateral posterior malleolus fracture with open reduction and internal fixation in order to restore bony anatomy and synosmotic stability. Still, we do need more data on the patient-rated outcome of this treatment strategy. By Okoa and colleagues entitled Comparison of Tendon Lengthening with Traditional versus Accelerated Rehabilitation after Achilles Tendon Repair, a prospective randomized controlled trial, and published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. The acute rupture of the Achilles tendon is a protracted injury as the operative repair only marks the beginning of a long recovery period. Post-surgical rehabilitation is an important aspect in the treatment of these injuries, aiming for an early restoration of the pre-injury activity level without increasing the risk of re-rupture or tendon elongation. 
Despite the increasing number of RCTs and reviews focusing on the postoperative rehabilitation, there is still no consensus regarding the most preferable protocol. Furthermore, the evidence available is regularly neglected. In 2010, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons published the only clinical guidelines recommending immediate postoperative weight bearing and immobilization of the ankle in an orthesis. Since then, various reviews analyzed the current evidence regarding the rehabilitation after Achilles tendon rupture. Although documenting the superiority of functional treatment by both early weight-bearing and early ankle mobilization, still no treatment recommendations exist and many orthopedic surgeons have not adapted more progressive protocols, but rather still treat their patients by immobilization and non-weight-bearing. In the current prospective randomized trial, 18 patients were included undergoing primary repair for acute Achilles tendon ruptures. The repair was conducted by open surgery either using Bunnell or Krakow sutures with non-resorbable sutures including tantalum beads. Then patients were randomized to either a traditional regime by weight-bearing after six weeks or accelerated, namely graduated weight-bearing at two-weeks regime. Both groups were immobilized for six weeks in a decreasing equinus. The primary outcome of the study was postoperative tendon elongation as measured by radiostereometric beads. Secondary outcomes included the Achilles tendon rupture score and the PROMISE score. All patients included in the final analysis were found to have a significant tendon lengthening after surgery, with a mean lengthening of 16 millimeters. No significant differences were found in overall lengthening between the traditional and accelerated rehabilitation groups, 15 versus 16 millimeters, at final follow-up after 12 weeks post-op. The repair site in each group was found to lengthen more than the intratendinous site. The greatest amount of lengthening occurred between two and six weeks, and the least amount of lengthening occurred between six and 12 weeks, with no differences between the traditional and accelerated groups at these time points. Furthermore, no differences were noted in ankle range of motion or the Achilles tendon rupture score or the promise. In neither group, any re-ruptures occurred. Thank you, Hans, for the paper presentation. Even though this is a RCT, it has several shortcomings. First, the accelerated treatment protocol falls short as only weight-bearing was conducted, while immobilization of the ankle, although various RCTs have documented that the combination of both, early weight-bearing plus early mobilization of the ankle, is even more beneficial. Furthermore, the population is extremely small, with 18 patients only, also when compared to other RCTs on this topic. Finally, the follow-up is extremely short, with 12 weeks only. Consequently, the patient-rated outcome measures assessed do not really add information to the mid- and long-term results. The most important aspect of this trial is that it once again sheds light on the importance of the rehabilitation following surgical treatment of acute Achilles tendon ruptures. So what did we learn for our daily practice? We feel confirmed once more that functional aftercare is not detrimental, but the contrary. Based on a systematic review, we postulated an evidence-based rehabilitation protocol in 2015. This protocol combines both 
immediate full weight bearing and early ankle mobilization. As studies showed that patients treated by this concept not only showed significantly higher satisfaction levels, less use of rehabilitation resources, and earlier return to pre-injury activities, but also seemed to demonstrate significantly superior functional results with increased calf muscle strength and reduced calf atrophy. Especially as there were no higher re-rupture rates, the postoperative rehabilitation should not only include full weight bearing or early mobilization, but should be based on the combination of both. This concept is once more supported by this current study. The third and final study presented in this podcast is entitled Effect of Tourniquet Use During Ankle Fracture Fixation on Wound Healing and Infectious Complications, published by Benedict in Foot and Ankle International. Tourniquets are commonly used in ankle surgery. They supposedly improve visualization of the operative field, reduce intraoperative blood loss and decrease operative time. Still, some studies have raised concerns regarding increased post-operative pain and swelling. With respect to tourniquet-associated complications, one must differentiate local complications such as local skin lesions, nerve and vascular injuries from, per uh, from peripheral transient ischemia-associated complications such as infections and wound healing problems. Benedict and colleagues investigated the effect of tourniquet use on wound healing and infectious complications after ankle fracture fixation. To do so, they used a retrospective prognostic comparative study design. They retrospectively identified all patients treated surgically for an ankle fracture between March 2003 and August 2016 at a single level 1 trauma center. The decision on tourniquet use was made by the treating surgeon. All tourniquets were placed at the proximal thigh. We assessed demographics, fracture details, medical history and complications. Complications were grouped into superficial wound infections, deep wound infections and wound healing complications. Out of 903 eligible patients, a tourniquet was used in 57.9%. No differences in demographics or rates of comorbid medical conditions were identified between the two groups. Open fractures were less common in the tourniquet group, 11 worth as 23%, p smaller 0.001. Infectious and wound healing complications occurred in 12% of patients, with no significant differences between the tourniquet and no tourniquet group. The authors then conducted a subgroup analysis on patient groups potentially more sensitive to transient issue ischemia-associated complications, age above 65 years, obesity and diabetes. Again, the use of a tourniquet had no significant influence on the complication rates in these subpopulations. Finally, they conducted a multiple logistic regression analysis to identify independent risk factors for the development of a complication. Again. Tourniquet use was no independent predictor of infectious or wound healing complications. The authors concluded that the use of a tourniquet did not affect rates of wound healing problems or infections during ankle fracture surgery. Despite the acknowledgeable sample size, this study is also inherent of common limitations associated to a retrospective study design. These include a possible allocation bias and incomplete data sets. The decision to use a tourniquet was at the operating surgeon's discretion. Thus, 
patients believed to be at higher risk of tourniquet-related complications may have disproportionately been excluded from the tourniquet group. This could have falsely lowered the complication rate in this group. The authors did not state on the incidence of peripheral arterial disease, but other conditions associated to a supposedly higher vulnerability to local ischemia, such as age and diabetes were encountered for and did not differ between the two groups. An example for limited analysis due to incomplete data sets in these studies are, for example, missing data on tourniquet pressure or tourniquet inflation time, especially prolonged inflation time and subsequent tissue ischemia might have a negative influence on wound healing problems or infections during ankle fracture surgery. This missing data might favor the non tourniquet group. In 2017, the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons published a clinical consensus statement on perioperative management. A five-member panel reviewed and discussed the available literature. Amongst others, they also reported on the safety of tourniquets for patients undergoing foot and ankle surgical procedures. Although they came to the conclusion that tourniquets are safe in most patients, multiple essential questions remain unanswered. What is the optimal pressure? In a survey on 317 podiatric physicians, the most commonly used pressure was 300 to 350 millimeter Hg for the thigh and 200 to 250 for the ankle and calf. But there's also data available recommending tourniquet pressure 75 millimeter Hg greater than the systolic pressure. How long can the tourniquet be applied? The group around Valorabano, for example, published a study on postoperative infections or wound healing complications. They were able to show that tourniquet time exceeding 90 minutes did increase the odds of developing a complication by seven times. And what about the concept of the breathing period? Recommended protocols vary from 30 minute breathing period after two hours to a 10 minute deflation after 90 minutes to 20 minutes after one hour. On the other side of the coin, there's the question whether we really do need tourniquets at all. Tourniquets are usually applied to provide a better overview and faster operation time. Actually, two meta-analyses by Young and Smith indicated no benefit from using a tourniquet. As a matter of fact, data apparently rather suggests that tourniquet use has a negative impact on swelling joint range of motion, and hospital stay. So what did we learn for our daily practice? Coming to the end of this episode, it again is astonishing how little we know what we actually do. Tourniquets are routinely used all over the world in foot and ankle surgery. Still, what impact it might have on our patient remains unclear. For us, each and every patient, independent on how few they are, suffering especially neurological or vascular complications are striking. We are constantly trying to lower the pressure applied, currently sticking to the 50 to 75 mm Hg above systolic pressure rule. Moreover, we try to reduce the overall use of tourniquets at all. There are so many variables that account into the final operation time. Why not spend that extra minute on careful hemostasis? As always, you can find the links to the cited papers in the description of this episode. 
Thank you very much for listening to Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment. We have to stand together strong to tackle what there might be ahead. Still, we also have to be aware of our patients' needs in foot and ankle surgery. We hope you and your families are healthy and safe. And you tune in next month again. Thank you.